You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. This morning, we, uh, we're going to start a brand new series today. But before we do that, and guys been back in the back, just know that you don't have this on your screen, uh, and that's okay. Uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. When the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, you do it. And you don't offer excuses, you do what he says. So I'm going to do what he says. James chapter 5, verse 13. I just want to read a few verses, and then we'll jump over to Genesis chapter 2, and then we'll move over to Romans chapter 5. But this is uh, something I feel like we need to do this morning. Listen to what James says. He says, Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Did you get that? Is that? Did you just read that along with me in Scripture? We have a lot of folks that are sick. My family was one of them. For the last several weeks, um, my wife has been as sick as I've ever seen her in 22 years of marriage. My kids have been sick. I think I'm the only one that hadn't been. Although I think there were some points along the journey there I may have had it, may have not had it, I don't know. I just know that this thing hit our family pretty hard. But notice what James says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We have a virus that is as bad now as it's been since all this began back in March. No doubt you know somebody who's sick. No doubt you know somebody who has lost a loved one. Maybe you've been through it. Maybe those that are watching online this morning, maybe you just got your positive result and, and now it's running through your home. Well, this time of prayer is going to be specifically for you this morning. So we're going to unite our hearts together in prayer. We're going to pray for our community. We're going to pray for our health care workers. We're going to pray for those that are sick. But there's one other thing I want to add in here. Not only do we have a virus called COVID-19 running across our nation wreaking havoc, but we have a whole other virus and you've seen it on display this week. We have hatred. We have division. We have division in our country like, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. Maybe those of you who have got a few years on me can speak to other times, but it's incredible what we're seeing. So yes, we do have a COVID-19 virus, but I think there's a virus that's much deeper than that that's causing much more havoc than that, and it's called sin. It's called disobedience. It's called hatred. And it flows right out of the pit of hell. And we're seeing it on display. Listen, it, you know, I, all that's happened this week politically, maybe 
Maybe you're disappointed or maybe you're overjoyed. The fact is, as as God's people, we've been called to pray for our leaders, whoever they are, whether you agree with them or not. So we're going to do that this morning. Let's bow together. For those online that are watching this morning, please join with us. Father in heaven, we pause because we know the power of prayer. No doubt everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus has experienced the power of prayer. So, Father, we pause this morning, and, Father, we're going to put action to what we believe, that prayer changes things. It changes the hearts of people. It, It can change a nation. It can change a leader. Because, Father, prayer has changed us. Father, we want to pray for every person in this room and every person watching online this morning that's been touched by this virus, maybe even suffering with it this morning as they watch online. Father, we pray for your healing. We pray for your strength. We pray, Father, that you would dispel all fear. We pray, Father, that as they go through this process, as they go through this virus, that, Father, they would feel your presence and your power and your love and your grace. We pray for all of our healthcare workers that are really at ground zero of this thing and have been for many, many, many months, working long, long hours. Those in the health department, those, Father, in the medical field, those in the doctor's offices, those in the pediatric offices, those in the nursing homes, those in administration over the hospital and all of these uh, different entities, Father, that all the decisions they've had to make, all the stress that they've been under, all the resources that they've had to, to find, Father, it's just been incredible. If all we pray for your blessing, we pray for your, your touch, we pray for your favor, we pray for your grace upon each one. If all we pray for all those families that uh, have someone missing around the table, who had someone missing over Christmas because of sickness either connected to this virus or not. And, and Father, I know that the hurt and the pain is especially real in the weeks after they've celebrated their life. And Father, we just pray for your comfort and your peace so that you would fill that void. Father, we pray for our country. Father, hatred has never solved anything. Fear, fear of other people, fear of the future, Father, that never solved anything either. So, Father, we pray that through this mess that we find ourselves in, that is the direct result of the fall, that, Father, we would cast our eyes upon Jesus and the cross that he bled upon that gives us freedom and life. Father, we know that there are countless numbers of people here in our community and across this country that are in places of power that, that have no regard for your word and have no regard for the church and have no regard for the gospel. But, Father, in those circumstances, in those places where those people are, Father, you still rule supreme regardless of their feelings towards you. That you reign supreme. That your will will be accomplished. So, Father, we pray for those leaders, both who follow you and those who reject you, those who honor your word and those who do not. We pray for them and we ask, Father, for those who do not, that they would see you high and lifted up. 
that Father, they would come under conviction, that they would repent, that they would be saved, be reborn into new life. For those who do follow you, who have put their faith in you, Father, I pray for courage, for strength, for wisdom, for guidance. And Father, they would lead and lead through serving and lead through love, lead by conviction. Father, what is desperately needed is for your house of prayer, the body, the, the church, to be a house of prayer, starting in our homes first and then spilling over into this congregation. Father, may the disunity that is happening in our country never invade this fellowship. May the hatred that is flowing across our land never, ever invade this fellowship and other fellowships like it where we take the gospel seriously and we take your word seriously. Father, heal our nation. Bring revival to the church where the lost are saved, the disciples are edified. And Father, the kingdom is moved forward by your power and by your hand. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us guidance day in and day out as we're confronted with the hatred of this world. Father, give us discernment, give us wisdom, and Father, may we, may we listen more than we speak. And when we do speak, that we would use wisdom. Father, we seek your throne this morning as we get into your word and we ask for your guidance in your word today. May the only voice that's heard, may the only voice that matters be the voice of the Holy Spirit who is in this place. And for those who are watching online, that, Father, our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be changed, and we live a life that's pleasing unto you. We ask all this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Turn over to Genesis chapter 2, if you don't mind. Genesis chapter 2. So we're, we're going to begin a series unlike anyone I've, I've done, well, really since I've been here. And there's several reasons that kind of led me to this set of sermons. Uh, there's some books I've been reading. Uh, had quite a bit of time to read over the last several weeks um, in between Clorox and sanitizing and cooking and doing laundry. Uh, I had some time in there to read, and this book that I read that kind of led into this sermon series I read several months ago. I've done hundreds of funerals. That may be a surprise to you, but I've done hundreds. Matter, matter of fact, I've done probably over 200 funerals before I ever came to be your pastor here as an associate pastor over an eight-year period of time. Now, that seems a little excessive, and I, I really don't know how it worked out as, a, as an associate pastor of youth and children, how it was that I ended up dealing with uh, so many families who'd lost loved ones who they asked me to do the funeral. I counted it as a great privilege and a great honor to serve in every one of those situations, but it is a unique thing that someone who's an associate pastor had done that many funerals. And through all those funerals, and plus all the ones that I've done here, there's some things that I've learned, and there's some things that I have well, my eyes have been open to, and in all of that experience, there's a few things that I, that I want to share with you this morning as a result of all that. First of all, funerals force us to consider our own mortality. That's why a lot of people get really anxious in, in the uh, visitation line. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, you know, I've stood by a lot of families in, in visitation lines where folks come to visit, and you can just see the anxiety on a lot of folks' face when they walk in the door of the funeral home. Matter of fact, that sometimes when you walk up to the family member who's lost a loved one, you don't really know what to say, and you're kind of stumbling over your words, and it's really kind of anxious. And, and one of the reasons for that is because every one of those people who walk into that receiving line or walk into that funeral are forced with the reality of their own mortality. You can't get away from it. Whether there be a, a coffin at the front of the room or an urn with someone's ashes in it, you can't get away from being forced to consider that one day, one day, you'll be faced with the same situation, maybe different circumstances. The other thing that I've learned through doing all these funerals is it doesn't matter how ardent the atheist is. It doesn't matter how far someone is away from Christ. That when you come into a funeral situation, whether that be in the receiving line, whether that be in the funeral itself, or whether that be at the graveside, it seems like everybody's talking about the life after this one. Now, a lot of those people that I've come in contact with down through the years, family, extended family, may be someone who's never stepped foot in a church. They may be atheistic in their thinking. They may not even believe that God exists or that if God does exist, it doesn't really matter. But yet in that moment when they're faced with death, they all of a sudden want to talk about the life after. Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you why that is. We've talked about it before in Ecclesiastes 3. Solomon says that eternity has been placed in every one of our hearts. You see, deep down, deep down, you know that this life is not all there is. And in all my journeys and with all the funerals and with all the families I've interacted with, I found that to be true. Now, it may be that right after that funeral, the atheist goes back to being the atheist. That there is no God and there is no afterlife and there is no life beyond the death. That when you go into the grave, you simply rot and that's the end. But for a moment in time, for a moment in time, their heart is crying out something totally different, especially when they're confronted with death. Let me ask you a question. Now, this is going to be a question that I'm going to kind of bring up over the next several weeks as we go through this together. Let me ask you a question. If it was revealed to you that one year from today, one year from today, at 1 p.m., your life would come to an end. What if, without a shadow of a doubt, you knew that one year from today, your life would come to an end. Would you live differently next week, next month, two months from now, six months from now, five months from now? I think you would. I think, I think there would be some choices that you would immediately make upon hearing the news that on a certain day, you're, you're certainly not going to live beyond a certain day. I think between now and that day, you're going to live differently. I think you're going to make different choices. I think there's going to be different priorities in your life. I think the way you spend your time, the way you spend your talent, the way you spend your resources is going to be used vastly different. The whole point of this series, the whole point of what we're going to look at today in the next few weeks, is that we might live differently as the result of understanding what Scripture has to say about life, death, heaven, hell, eternity, 
streets of gold, pearly gates, all the stuff that you've heard that we're going to try to get into Scripture and try to understand for what the Scripture actually says, that, that we might live differently today. And, and for those of you watching, for those of you in the building, that maybe, just maybe as a result of this, you will choose to follow Jesus maybe for the very first time. Because none of us are guaranteed another day. Listen to this quote. This is from a guy, theologian Walter Hendrickson. He says this, he says, quote, There are two perspectives on life, mine and God's. This is God's perspective. Compared to eternity, my life is less than a moment. The best of men live in vain, live vain, futile lives. My perspective on life, in order for it to be properly invested, must be shaped by God's perspective. That's the whole point of what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks about what does the Bible actually say about life and death, life hereafter. What does the Bible actually say? Not someone's opinion about what heaven is going to be like, what hell is going to be like. We're going to look at what Scripture actually says. And, and to begin, the only right place to begin is to begin where death began. And that's in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15 in Genesis chapter 2. So we're right in the middle of the creation account. And in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Every time I read that set of passages, it reminds me of my childhood when my dad, my dad had a tendency to be very, very clear about expectations. So whether I was with him on the farm or whether I was at home with my mom when I would get home from school, and especially when I got into those adolescent years and those preteen years when I started to think that I knew everything, I can remember my dad distinctly. There was this point in time where I was kind of being a little sassy towards my mom, and I can remember distinctly my dad pulling me off one side. He got in my face. I think maybe I was about 12 or 13. And he looked me directly in the eye, and he says, you do not ever disrespect your mother. And if you do, you will have to deal with me. And I knew what that meant. He didn't have to define that. My dad was very clear with me about expectations. He said, if, if, if you go down this path, then you can count on this being your consequence. And, and with God speaking to Adam here, it sounds just like my dad or maybe one of your parents when they spoke to you clearly about choices and consequences. God being a, a good, good father looks at his prized possession, his prized creation, Adam, and he says to Adam, look, you can eat of everything in this field. And I, I would imagine that in my mind's eye, in, in this Garden of Eden, it was one of the most beautiful places that you could ever imagine. There is countless things to eat, countless fruit trees to eat from, but there was one tree, only one tree, and there was one law, and that law to Adam was, do not eat of this tree, as clear as it could be. Adam, you see all these trees? Yeah, God, I see all these trees. Okay, you can eat from all of them, but you see that tree right there? Yeah, God, I see that tree. Do not eat of that tree. And if you do, because good parenting always requires us to bring up the concept, right? 
here's what I expect. Here's what's going to happen if you do otherwise. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, now get this, get this picture. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the servant came along and tempted it. We don't know how long that was. I believe it was probably a relatively short period of time. What does that mean? I don't know. But in that period of time that Adam and Eve was able to live in that garden where there was no sin, there was also no death. Now get this. Some of you have a green thumb in your, in your planting and some of you do not. Some of you uh, kill more plants than you're able to save. But in this setting... There was no death, which means there was no plants that were dying. It means that there was no animal carcasses anywhere to be around. There was no death whatsoever. There were no storms. There were no hurricanes. There were no tornadoes. It was absolutely a perfect environment. But what I really want you to see here is there was absolutely no death. None whatsoever. The punishment for eating from this one tree was going to bring something into the world that had not existed before. So it's a very serious consequence connected to what God had clearly told Adam not to do. Now this raises all kinds of questions. We don't have time to get into all of them today. But one I definitely want to get into is if, if, if Adam had no concept of death, in other words, there was no death at all in the world. He had, he had no, nothing he could point to to say, okay, that's life and that's death. He had no concept of that. Yet when God says to him, if you eat of this tree, you're going to surely die, did Adam understand? And if he didn't understand, does that make him culpable for the decision that he made? And I would offer to you that Adam and Eve were adults. They had the ability to comprehend, to understand. Remember, they bear the image of God, which means they were logical, they were reasonable. They knew that that one tree was going to bring something into the world, and yet they chose to eat of that tree anyway. I would offer to you that, that Adam and Eve were culpable. They were responsible for their decisions. They were responsible for their choices. And God says, if you eat of this tree, you're going to experience death. Well, you know the story in chapter 3. A serpent comes along, and it seems rather odd that a serpent would be speaking, but in that particular scenario, in this particular narrative, and, and make sure you understand, this is not a fable. This is not some story that made its way into Scripture. This actually happened, and I'll show you that Paul believed that in just a minute. But this serpent who had never given anything to Adam and Eve, this serpent who had never promised them anything, this serpent who had never provided anything for Adam and Eve comes along and begins to speak with Eve about what God really said, the reasons why God said what He said, and that they should just cast off all inhibition. The serpent targeted the heart the same way that he does today. And the way that he did it is, is he appealed to Adam and Eve's desire to be in control of their own life. The same exact tactic that Satan used there is the same tactic that he uses today. Cast off all restrictions. Cast off all, all inhibitions. You live your life the way you want to live it. Who is God to say what you're to do and what you're not to do? Who is God to say that you can eat of all these trees and yet there's this one tree you can't eat from? Isn't it just like Satan to point to the one thing? The one thing that God said, stay away from? Isn't it just like Satan to point to that one thing? 
Isn't it just like Satan to get your attention on the one thing that God says brings destruction into your life? That's exactly what he does, and he does it well. Remember, he's a liar, a very good one. Adam had been given a clear command, and by default, Eve had been given a clear command. Serpent comes along and begins to talk to Eve, and, she said, and, and the serpent says, You will not surely die. You see, God knows that your eyes will be open. You'll be like Him. You no longer have to be under His control. You can be in control. So Eve looks, she desires, and she takes. Adam, he's right there the whole time. Never says a word. Never speaks up. Never says, hey, Eve, wait a minute. God said we can eat of all these trees. We've got hundreds of trees to eat from. Why is it we have to be consumed with this one tree? He takes of the fruit, he eats. Look at verse 8. Actually, look at verse, uh, let's back up into verse uh, 7. So after they eat, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There are several things that die in this garden. We're going to get to the physical death and the spiritual death, but I want you to look at some of the other things that die immediately upon their disobedience. First of all, the first thing that dies is their innocence. The first thing that dies in this garden is their innocence. As soon as they disobey God, as soon as they do their own thing, as soon as they decide that they are in control, ultimately that they are God, their innocence dies. They were ashamed. They they begin to cover themselves. They had they'd been walking around in this garden without any clothes. They'd been naked all this time, and there'd been no issues, no inhibitions, no separation, no shame whatsoever. And the very moment that they disobey God, immediately they look at one another and they're ashamed. They're ashamed of, of what God had made. They're ashamed of their bodies. They're ashamed of their situation. They begin to cover it up. This points to that spiritual death that that on that day, at that moment, Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death, separation from God. Notice what happens. Verse 8, And when they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And by the way, this is something that happened on a regular basis, that God would come and walk with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So not only did innocence die on that day, but intimacy with God and intimacy with one another died on that day. They no longer had an intimate relationship with God, a relationship where, where God would walk with them and they could talk together and be together in love, in perfect grace, and in perfect, perfect life. Now, for the first time ever, for the first time ever, Adam and Eve run away from God rather than towards Him. I would imagine that, that when God would come and walk with them, they would run towards Him in a loving embrace. But on this day, they run and they hide. But not only did their intimacy with God die, but their intimacy with one another dies on that same day. Their relationship with one another begins to suffer. Notice what happens when God asks the, a simple question. The same way my dad used to treat me. Son, I told you not to do this. Did you do that? Pretty simple, isn't it? God says, don't eat from the tree. Hey, Adam, Eve, did you eat from the tree? Notice what happens. It says here that, verse 10, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then the man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave me. Now, just, just a few verses before, we don't know how much time before this. Do you remember when, when God made Eve? you remember Adam's first response? He was blown away. He, he was blown away that, that God would make someone like him, a helpmeet to him. He was blown away by our beauty. But after the fall, after the disobedience, what's happening now? She did it. She did it. So not only did innocence die and intimacy die, but integrity died. Honesty. He, he says, she did it. Notice what she does. Verse 12. I'm sorry. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent did it. The serpent deceived me. The death of integrity and honesty. What was once a beautiful relationship has now died. Not just the relationship between Adam and Eve, but the relationship between Adam and Eve and their God. It's severed. It's broken. And not only that, but another thing that died that day is, is the environment in which they live. They were going to have to be cast out. God says, unless they go and eat from the tree of life and live eternally in a fallen state, we must cast them out. A lot of loss on that day. But notice this. Also the death of a substitute. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right there in verse 21 is the first animal sacrifice on behalf of humanity. Because they had sinned, they are now spiritually dead, their, their intimacy with God is now broken, their intimacy with one another is now broken, and, and unless they be completely cast away from God forever, He, God, takes and slaughters some animals takes their skins and covers, covers their shame, their sinfulness. So for the first time ever, a substitutionary death of an animal on behalf of sinful humanity happens at verse 21. A lot of things died that day. But what about Adam and Eve? What about their physical life? Why is it that if death is the result of their disobedience, why is it God just didn't wipe them out right there on that day? Why, why is it that God just didn't take both of their lives physically and that be the end? As a matter of fact, Adam lives 930 years. Well, part of that is, is just the grace of God. Part of it is just that, that great, God's grace in allowing Adam and Eve to live many years. But make no mistake about it, they spiritually died that day, and then they physically died. No matter how long they lived, no matter how many hundreds of years it was, the rest of their days, they would be forced to consider that their life is going to come to an end. As a matter of fact, their own offspring. We have the first murder in the very next chapter. We have the first hand being raised against another. 
And it just happened to be two brothers. At this point, we have to consider, why would God give such a harsh punishment? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it? Now, we're going to get over in Romans chapter 5, and, and Paul's going to unpack some of this. But before we get there, why is it that God would do such a, a harsh response? Spiritual death and physical death. Why is it that the world had no death in it? And because of one choice, not only do we have plants dying, but we got animals dying. we got animals attacking one another. we got the whole world in chaos, the whole world under a curse. But why was death specific? You, when you look at the rest of chapter 3, you see all of the punishment that God gave out both to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam. But death is now going to be a brand new experience for the entire world. Here's the reason I think God told him early on in Genesis chapter 2 that death would be the result. You see, the, the results or the, the focus of their sin, the focus of their disobedience, and I would offer to you the focus of all sin, the focus of all disobedience, is whether you're going to be God or God is going to be God. Whether God is going to be in control of your life and He gets to dictate your life and He gets to call the shots in your life or whether you get to be. See, that's the struggle every single one of us go through every single day. As Christ followers, we know what Paul had to say, that he had to die daily. But here's the reason I think, and from what I can tell in Scripture, that death was the central part of the punishment for humanity. It's because nothing separates us more from God than the fact that we die. Think about it. What strikes right at the heart of our idea of being God? What strikes right at the core of this concept that we have in our head that we're in control, that we somehow call the shots? Is it not death? Is not death the great equalizer of all the world? It doesn't matter if you're a CEO with $5 billion in the bank or you're a homeless guy, both of them will face death. It doesn't matter if you're president or if you run a little gas station in a nowhere town. It does not matter how much influence or fame that you have. It doesn't matter how much you build your portfolio that every single human being on this planet right now, regardless of their power, regardless of their status, is going to face death. And let me tell you, folks, that strikes right at the heart of that God complex that you and I tend to have. Because God is eternal. He can make plans off into eternity where you and I, we can make all the plans we want to make. We can put all the money we want to in the bank, but there's going to be a day when somebody else is going to own the car you drove in here in. Somebody else is going to own the house that you built. Somebody else is going to fill the position that you're now filling at your job. Somebody else is going to have all that. And I can tell you without any hesitation, that is a great humbling thought, is it not? It strikes right at the heart. Whether you're a drug addict or a CEO, death is going to come to all of us if, if Jesus continues to allow things to go as they are. More than likely, everyone in this room is going to face death. And that death, that death forces us to consider that our time is limited. That we're not in control. We never were. The idea that, that some of you have that, I'm, I'm just going to put off another week or two. 
another month or two, another year or two to, to follow Jesus. I'm just going to put it off. That is at the very essence of what we're learning about in Genesis chapter 3, that you don't have control, that you don't have the say whether you have another month or another year. You have no way, no way to determine, no way to control what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, or next year. None whatsoever. The reality is, is that the Holy Spirit's drawing you to the cross today. Why in the world would you wait another day? Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Now, physical death, spiritual death, spiritual death, that separation from God, that, that sin and disobedience has brought from us. And you may be asking yourself or thinking to yourself, well, if Adam did all that and Eve did all of that, then why am I having to face all that I'm having to face? If that was Adam and Eve's choice back in the garden that I had nothing to do with, then why is it that I'm having to suffer? Why is it the world is having to suffer? Well, Paul's going to clear that up. Paul's going to look back at what we just looked at. And he's going to help us through the lens of Christ and through the lens of, of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ, help us make sense of what happened all the way back in the garden. Paul is right in the middle here of a, a set of powerful arguments about what it means to, first of all, put faith in Christ, to put faith in God, the results of what it means to put faith in Christ, and then the results of what happens when we do that. Now, at verse 12 in Romans 5, he's going to show us just how vitally important this is. He's going to show us, and he's already shown us in the book of Romans, that all have sinned, all have fallen short, none are righteous, every single human being, every single human being is born as a sinner. Even before you make a choice about whether to obey or not to obey. Regardless of your choice, regardless of whether you decide to follow God or not, before all of that, you're born as a sinner because of what Adam and Eve did. Specifically Adam, that Paul focuses on. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Notice that. Paul, in the book of Romans, has some very pregnant sentences. What I mean by that is Paul can make a single sentence, it may be eight or ten words, and you've got to wrestle and contemplate with that for quite some time because of the theological significance of what he's saying. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through one act of disobedience, sin, which is us with our God complex, us deciding that, that we know what is best, that, that the God who had given Adam and Eve everything, had given them love and peace and a place to live that was unlike anything we've ever seen, Yet a serpent comes in that they do not know and in just a matter of moments is able to convince them that they ought to be in control. And through this one act, sin came into the world. And notice this, came through one man and out of that came death. So we have sin, we have disobedience, and then out of that disobedience comes death. But notice this next phrase. And so death spread to all humanity because all have sinned. Now, you may say that is incredibly unfair. Adam, 
my great, 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 whatever you want to say, however great you want to throw in there, grandfather, represented me in the garden. He represented all of humanity. He only had one rule, one law. And he was even told what the circumstances were going to be if he disobeyed God. And in that moment, as our representative, as our head in the garden, he sinned and it cast all of us into sin. And death spread to all. I mean, you know how we know? You know how we know that every single human being is born into sin? It's because our landscape is dotted with tombstones. Every single funeral, every single death reminds us that every single human being was born as a sinner. You may not like it. You may think real highly of yourself and say, you know, there's no way that I could be in that category. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you going to face death? The answer to that question is yes. If the answer to that question is yes, then guess what that means? You are born as a sinner. Notice what else Paul says. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul says something incredible here. Paul says, let me remind you, that between Adam and Moses, we had funerals. We had people dying. We had people who were, who were dying all over the scene. Yet there was no law that had been given. In other words, when the law has been given, when God gave the law through Moses, that it set a standard by which humanity was to live. But between Adam and Moses, there was no specific law given by God. But yet, all of those people died. Every single one of them. What this shows us is, is that the death is the result of sin. And that sin is something we're born into. Before we make the first choice. Before we have the ability to understand and comprehend right from wrong. Before any of that, we are all born under a death curse. Adam, our representative, failed miserably. And through his failure, we're all cast into sin. And death becomes reality. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. We are born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says very clearly there that we are spiritually dead. We have physical life, but no spiritual life. And it's through the call of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, that we are reborn into new life. Look at verse 15 get to the good news. Paul begins to unpack this. Okay, so if, if we're all under a curse, we're all born spiritually separated from God, and then we all have to face physical death. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. Where's the hope? Well, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace only one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for Many. There is this theological term called imputation or imputing. And what it means is, is that, that when, when Adam sinned, it imputed to us, it, it reckoned to every one of us, it uh, accounted to every one of us sin and death. But Jesus, 
who comes and the free gift of Him laying down His life as a sacrifice, Him dying for the sins of humanity, nothing that He did Himself, but what we did. Paul says the trespass, the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man, that is Adam, much more have the grace of God through the free gift of grace through the one man Jesus Christ. And here's what happens. Paul begins to contrast what Adam did and the results of what Adam did versus what Jesus accomplished and the results of that. Let me give you a few. But Adam brought death. But through Jesus' grace was poured out. We just sung about amazing grace. The fact that we were born into sin and then we choose to sin, that, that the God of this universe would still pursue us as a miracle in and of itself. That, that God wouldn't just wash His hands of the entire universe and say, death is now your lot. Death is now your inheritance. And good luck with that. But through Jesus Christ, though Adam brought sin and death and a curse, Jesus brings grace and life. He says that through one man's trespass, many died. But through one man's obedience, Christ and the grace of God abounded to many. Look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 16 is an incredibly beautiful verse. The contrast couldn't be even greater. That Adam's sin brought condemnation. What does that mean? It means that, that God has focused on humanity because of our being born into sin and our choosing to sin, that God will pour out His wrath upon that sinner and deservedly so. But being dead spiritually, separated from God, and facing physical death, and then being separated from God for all eternity, is the right just thing to do for the sins of humanity. But then you contrast that with what Jesus accomplished. It says, the gift is not like the result, that one man's gift or one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, look at that, many trespasses brought justification. Many trespasses. You see, it's not that we were just born into sin. No, we chose. And every human being has made the same choice. Because we have a bent towards evil. We have, a, we have a bent towards disobedience. We have a bent towards going after the one thing God says don't go after. We have this desire to pursue that which we know and has been revealed to us, not only in history and time, but to pursue that which brings chaos in our lives. We continue to pursue it. You've got loved ones. You've got family that have been still are addicted to all kinds of substances. You, you keep pulling your hair out. Why in the world, after all the treatment, why is it after, after all that we've done, why do they continue to go back? Because we're all bent to go back. We're born that way. But Paul says, justification is the result of what this man Jesus did. Justification means that that all of those sins and all those trespasses are forgotten, forgiven, cast as far as the east is from the west. And justification is the idea that it's just as if I had not done anything at all. I'm, I'm declared righteous by God. 
in my brokenness and in my sin and in my darkness and in death and under a curse, God pursues me with His grace through Jesus Christ and what He accomplished. I'm able to be justified, cleansed, as though nothing had ever happened. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Look at that. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. I want you to see this contrast. Death reigning over you, or you reigning in life. Paul says that because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, death reigns over us. Before I came to faith in Christ, I really struggled with, with death. I, even at, I came to faith when I was 16, but even at age 14 or 15, I can distinctly remember struggling with where I would end up if I died. Death reigning over you. That is the result of Adam. But because of what Jesus did, death no longer has to reign over you. It no longer has to control your life. It no longer has to dictate everything you do in your life. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, we don't have to live every single day of our life with this cloud of death hanging over our heads, that even in death we know we have victory, not because of our goodness, not because of our righteousness, because of what Jesus accomplished. You see, Jesus, the only man to die under that curse, because he took the curse upon himself, well, what happens three days later? He comes back to life. The only one ever to do that. In all of human race, all we have is death, and despair. And in the middle of all of that, we have this light that comes in Bethlehem. And that light grows up and he lives a perfect life. And in three and a half years, he does incredible ministry, incredible works of God, proving who he is, proving his own identity, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the only one qualified to die on that cross. And then he dies. And everyone thinks that's the end. The curse has got another one. Another one who claimed to be something that ultimately death said he was not. Oh, but folks, three days later. Three days later, this king of all kings walks out of a grave and he blows the whole premise up that death is going to reign. Death was put down on that day. Death died on that day. Adam. He brought condemnation. He brought death. Jesus brings life, an abundance of grace, and peace. We spend our entire lives trying to outrun death. We, we try to cover it up. We, we, we try not to think about it. Folks, we live our lives as though we're going to live forever right here in America. We live as though we're never going to have to face it. I've seen this with 80-year-olds, and I've seen it with 20-year-olds, that we are somehow invincible, and we're not going to think about it until we're forced to think about it, until the doctor says something, until we go to a funeral. We're not going to think about it. We're just going to put it off. We understand the reign of death. We understand that. We, under, we get it. 
But through Jesus, disciple of Christ, through Jesus, you no longer live under the reign of death. You no longer live under that, and now you've been given life. Not only life hereafter, but life now. Are we living that life now? Are we living an abundant life now? Days are running out. Time is getting short. Why are we wasting it living under the reign of death when you've been set free from that? Or have you? Maybe you haven't. Maybe that's why death is still reigning over you is because you're still living under the curse. You're still spiritually dead. Maybe. Maybe the fear of death is what God is doing to drive you towards life. A few things we'll close. First of all, all descendants of Adam and Eve are sinners and will face death. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good you've been. If you're a descendant of Adam and Eve, you are a sinner and you will face death. You're already spiritually dead. One day you'll face physical death. Second thing, physical death does not mean that you cease to exist. Now that's where, where we're going to really hammer on this for the next several weeks. Physical death is not the end. Physical death is the beginning. Physical death is the beginning of eternity. Who you are, who you are right now, what makes you, you, that's going to live forever. That's part of God's image in you. We've got to consider that. That this little sliver of time we've got on this planet is going to have influence over eternity. Third, Jesus alone overcame death. Put your faith in Him. Look at verse 17. Look at this. It says, for if, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, look at this, much more will those who receive, you get that? Those who receive. A gift has been given, but you must receive it. Just because, just because you know about Jesus, just because you know about salvation, just because you know about the resurrection, just because you know that Jesus died in your place, if you have not received that, if the Holy Spirit hasn't drawn you and you've received that, then no wonder you're still living under the fear of death. And then finally, Jesus destroyed the reign of death. So Christian, live your life for him. These momentary issues we've got going on, these, these problems that we're getting inundated with from our culture, we should be concerned about it. We should be praying about it. We should be, we should be lifting people up. We should be doing our part. But listen to me, Christian. Put a smile on your face. This place is not your home. Don't put too much roots down in this place. Don't, don't live as though this is your home because it's not. Don't get used to this environment because this is not going to be your final environment. You're going back to the place that Adam and Eve joined. You're going to be back in that place. Don't live as though this is your home. If you live as though this is your home, you're going to be downcast, downtrodden, depressed, and broken. And you're going to be living under the reign of death that you were never meant to live under if you're a born-again believer in Christ. Stop it. Stop it. Put a smile on your face. Nothing that happens at Capitol Hill, the White House, or anywhere else is going to rob me of the joy of the reality of where I belong. None of that is going to do that.
No, COVID-19's not going to do it. A cancer diagnosis is not going to do it. I am not built for this place. I'm built for that place over there. And I'm going there just as sure as I'm standing on this stage. And I want all y'all to go with me. Father in heaven, I believe that over the next few weeks, you're going to do something miraculous in the lives of people. It's not going to be because I'm getting to share. It's going to be because of the work of the Holy Spirit and what He's going to do with what you've laid on my heart. I believe there are going to be people who come to faith in Christ because they're faced with living under the reign of death and living true life. Father, we know where death came from. We know, Father, that it is reigning in this world, but we also know that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Through the resurrection, through the promise of life, through our faith in Jesus, we no longer have to live under that reign of death. Father, as we walk through this over the next several weeks, have your will and your way do a powerful work in this body, both here on campus and those watching online, and may you receive the glory for it all. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 